this year is on transformation. And um, in Ephesians, Paul says, I'm praying that the Spirit will open the eyes of your heart um, that you may realize what you have in Jesus, this immeasurable power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, seated him as king over all creation, that this same power now dwells in you. Now, my childhood friend Russell, you know, I talk about him every once in a while, he, he, he you know, we were studying this together and he said, yeah, this basically what he learned from this, he says, if God can make a dead man, take a dead man and make him king of the universe, just think what he can do through you. That's basically what this passage is saying. So as we approach Easter and we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this idea of transformation takes on a whole new meaning for followers of Jesus Christ. And we think about it, that God, man, God is just, he's going for it. He's not just, God's not just content in making you a better Christian. God, uh, he wants new creation. He's going to make you and I into something different. This idea that there's no task too daunting, no sacrifice too great. I mean, that's what God said when he gave his son uh, for us. And, and, and we say the same as we think about Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is worthy and, and we can do anything for him if that's what God wants. And, and there's no sacrifice too great if that's what God wants. So this morning, we, we're approaching Easter, and our hearts and minds tor- turn towards Jesus. And the next few weeks, we're going to be studying the life of Jesus, particularly the last week of Jesus' ministry when he went into Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was at this moment that Jesus would eventually be crucif- would be arrested, crucified, and would rise from the dead. And so we're going to start out with an event that's commonly known as the triumphal entry. Now, the triumphal entry was the third time that Jesus went into Jerusalem and the religious leaders and the Romans wanted to make sure that this would be his last time. And so, in this passage, what we're gonna be looking at is is what it means to be spiritually minded. And I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. So let's go ahead and let's stand in reverence for the word of God. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount which is called the Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you should say to them, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found, just as, found it just as he told them. And they were untying the colt, and its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, and they sent Jesus on it. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
from this passage, we're going to see that disciples of Jesus Christ are spiritually minded people. That spiritually minded people know the victory that Jesus has brought and they know what God requires in light of it. And, and, and at this time right now, Jesus had not, I mean, up to this time, Jesus had not uh, been openly talking about his kingship, but now he is allowing it. He is encouraging it. Everything that he's doing is showing that he is, in, in fact, the Messiah, the King of Israel who has come. And, and as he goes, you'll see these two things. They always happen at the same time. The spiritually, you'll see the spiritually, you'll see the Jesus and the disciples, spiritually minded. You'll see um, that, that God's plan is, 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 is going forward. Jesus is faithfully and determinately obeying his Father. And then you see the second thing going on. You'll see kind of the physically or the earthly minded, the Pharisees and the crowd and the religious leaders, and they, they only see Jesus kind of in light of the, the, the situation, the temporal situation. See, everything that Jesus did, everything he said, every miracle, every parable, every discourse revealed a, a, a spiritual reality. And for the disciples, they looked at Jesus and they would become so devoted to him that they would be willing to die for him. And the Pharisees would see, kind of, they would see and hear the exact same things, and they would come to the conclusion that Jesus must die as soon as possible. So it's really kind of interesting. You see these two conclusions that couldn't be further apart. You know, one says, we're willing to die for you, and the other says, Jesus needs to die. Uh, the only, what this does is it emphasizes the importance of seeing things through the eyes of faith. And there are three things we want to see from this passage in regards to the importance of being spiritually minded. The first thing is that spiritually minded people see things in terms of their spiritual significance. We'll see that last week we talked about um, this idea that Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And, and I believe that this is again a promise that, uh, that God gives to us as well. That, that as spiritually minded people, we understand that, that, hey, God has given us the victory, even though sometimes from a physical standpoint, we, we're not sure if we really can, can see what Jesus is talking about. See, the thing is, is sometimes what we want is not um, what God often gives us, right? I mean, we think about Jesus, and, and, and Jesus says, I've overcome the world. And yet we look at our struggles and we go, wow, it doesn't, mm, doesn't feel like it sometimes. Uh, that we have our own notions, our own ideas of like, this, this is what I want uh, in terms of victory. This is what I think uh, Jesus overcoming the world means. In Luke chapter 19, you know, we, we know that this is called the triumphal entry. And it sounds like something like, like victorious, wonderful. But it's kind of ironic because from a, a physical standpoint, I mean, if you really were to talk to people and say, hey, this is the triumphal entry, and they look at it and say, well, yeah, it's a triumphal entry, but look what happens. Jesus gets arrested. Uh, Jesus gets beaten up. Jesus is brought before two trials, clearly not found, found not guilty, and yet he's sentenced to death, he's tortured, and then he's crucified. And we look at that and say, how can that be a triumphal entry? Um, for those preoccupied with physical, for those who see things from a physical standpoint, they would look at it and say, wow, there's these declarations of innocence followed by condemnation. And we say, man, that's a, that's a travesty 
of justice. That's not fair. But for the spiritually minded, from God's eyes, he would look at it and God would say, this is, but this is essential to, to the plan of redemption and salvation. You know, the, the, the worldly would look at physical torture and mocking and say, this is suffering that is unnecessary, it's extreme without meaning, and yet God would look at this and God would show us and say, but every humiliation that Jesus endured is just further confirmation that Jesus indeed is the, the, the true king that comes from God because all the prophecies had spoken of it. And so we see the victory in the eyes of the physical and the spiritual are very different. And, and we look at this, and, and many times, you know, we look at defeats and, 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 and we don't realize that these actually can be uh, God's victories happening right in our lives. I've seen many situations, and I know a lot of you college students, or a lot of you high school students right now are, are nervously waiting for, you know, your responses, or you're, you're trying to decide, or maybe you're excited because you, you got a few responses. Um, I've seen many situations where young people have not gotten into the colleges of their choice. They haven't gotten into the ones that they want. They got rejection letters, and it's really devastating because it can feel like you know your future is ruined or your future is now in jeopardy. I lost some good opportunities. I'm not going to get the things that I really want for my life. And yet, though it can be very uh, discouraging from a physical perspective, spiritually, I've seen people that have not gotten into the college of their dreams. I've seen people who have dropped out of the college of their dreams. And yet they will look back on it and say, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. It is the best thing that ever happened to me. That God put me in the place where, where he wants me to be and I'm so happy that I'm not in the, the college that, that I wanted to be in. I've seen situations where people have not gotten the job that they really wanted to get or, or they got laid off and they say, man, this is the worst possible time for me to lose my job and there's feelings like you know my life is on hold or again my future's in jeopardy or my self-worth is, is, is taking a big blow and yet after a while after sometimes after a long while uh, we see they see God do something in their lives spiritually and they would say man we could we never stop rejoicing over what God has done during that time or through that time uh, when I've lost a job. And again, I'm not saying these hypothetically. Um, there are many people here right now, and I can see out in the congregation right now, that we walk together and we come and we pray and say, you know, God, this has been a long road when we've lost a job, and it's really hard. And yet, afterwards, to be able to look and say, look at what God has done. And so thankful to say that this was actually a victory um, that that we thought was a defeat. Now we look at this and we say, well, does it always have to be through disappointment? Because this sounds kind of scary. Um, but you know, it's not always through disappointment. The problem is, is the reason why it's, always, it's often through disappointment is because often you know, we're not seeking to look at things through a spiritual perspective, right? So often uh, we, we choose to see things through a, a, a worldly or an earthly perspective. And, and so if we're proactively, we're saying, hey, I want to make decisions based on spiritual realities uh, on, on, that, that, that Jesus is the yearning of my heart, and that, that then we can believe that God will indeed direct our paths, that if we put spiritual things first, we're, we're really honoring Jesus, that Jesus is the most important, then our choices, 
uh, regarding our families, regarding our children, regarding our friends, regarding our time, regarding our money, um, perhaps things will be different and we'll start seeing God indeed leading us to victories. I've never seen, I've never um, met parents, I'll say this, I've never met parents who regretted making the spiritual the most important thing in their children's lives. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. I've never met parents, Christian parents, who have regretted making spiritual things the most important thing in their children's lives. I've never seen parents say, I regret teaching my children to pray. Boy, that was a mistake, spending so much time praying with them. I've never met parents say, I regret bringing my children to church when they were so young. Boy, they have such, these Christian friends, man. I wish, you know, uh, that they had spent more time in school or, or, or I wish that, that they had made more money. No, I've never met parents who regret building their family around spiritual priorities. I've never met spiritually minded parents who have regretted having spiritually mature children. Doesn't matter what their children do. Doesn't matter what their children have gone through. Doesn't matter how much, their, how much money their children make or what status they have or whatever. I've never seen parents regret having spiritually mature children, whatever they do. Now on the other hand, I've met a lot of parents whose hearts are broken because they have realized that even in their greatest sincerity, they have forfeited spiritual priorities for things of this world. I know that's hard to say, but that I've seen parents who've regretted putting too much pressure or stress on worldly accomplishment and worldly success and, and, and regretted a later on in life seeing the children not have those spiritual priorities and maturity that, 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 that the parents really do long for. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, we want the Spirit to continually help us to see situations, make decisions in light of spiritual realities, spiritual significance. We don't want to look back and say we have regrets. We want to look forward and say, God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Spiritually minded people always think in terms of spiritual significance. They are the ones who can really say, I've tasted of the Lord, and man, he tastes good. He tastes really good. I've seen God work in ways that I will never stop thanking him. I'll never stop praising him. I've made choices to honor Jesus and I will never regret them ever for the rest of our lives. We go back and we think about this and you look at um, Luke 19 again and it's ironic because you know the Pharisees, they, um, oops, is this working? Oh well, uh, next slide. <laughs> The Pharisees, um, they actually see kind of the spiritual aspects of these signs, right? They, the, the Pharisees actually know that Jesus is presenting himself as a Messiah. And because uh, riding on a donkey, hey, that's mess messianic. Coming down from the Mount of Olives, oh, that's messianic. So, so the Pharisees, they kind of could see these things, but the problem with the Pharisees was they didn't want to accept it. And this brings us to the second point. Um, we see things in terms of spiritual significance. The second point is that, that uh, not only do spiritually minded people see things according to spiritual significance, but they act accordingly. 
um, they, they, they do the things, they make the decisions based on these spiritual truths. Now you go back to the beginning of this passage, it begins really with the obedience of the disciples. In verse 30, Jesus gives some very specific instructions to the disciples. He says, go to the village in front of you, run upon entering it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. And then in verse 32, almost word for word, Luke records the disciples following Jesus' instructions. Now, you know, you kind of read this and it seems like this is kind of redundant. Like if you were writing literature and you'd say, oh, Jesus said this, and then they did exactly the same thing and it went exactly like Jesus said. And you're like, well, why, why don't they just say you know, Jesus said this and that's all. They don't need to repeat everything. That it, but what, what's going on here is that, that uh, Luke is emphasizing that the disciples actually listened to everything Jesus said and they did everything exactly like Jesus said and everything happened exactly like Jesus said. And so there's a sense that the disciples, they are, um, they are obedient. They're listening and they're, they're, they're doing. And in verse 37, it says, when he, were draw, when he was drawing near, it says, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now what's interesting about this particular passage is that in all the other gospels, they, 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 they tend to, they, they, they use the word the crowds, they don't use the word disciples. Um, Luke explicitly singles out his disciples, uh, began to rejoice and praise God. Matthew, it talks about the crowd. It talks about they call him a prophet. In John, it even says that, uh, it even implies that a lot of the crowd, they didn't come really to worship God as the Messiah. They came because uh, they, 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 they saw Lazarus rise from the dead and they were like really excited. And so, so in the other Gospels, there's a sense that there's, there's a lot of reasons why the crowd gathered, uh, but then we also know the crowd's not that reliable because this same crowd later on, uh, particularly in the other Gospels again, they, they, you know, just a few days later, they'd be starting to, instead of saying, you know, blessed is the name of the king, they'd be saying, uh, crucify, crucify him. Um, and in fact, in verse 39, it, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, hey, teacher, um, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to, uh, to, to basically tell them to shut up. And uh, the Pharisees can see the spiritual significance of what's happening, you know, that Jesus is being presented as the king, but they reject it. Why? Because they're, they're concerned about worldly things. They, 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 they're concerned about, wow, Jesus, uh, how it affects the standing of the nation. This is, this is not good for Israel if we start talking about some king that's gonna overthrow Rome. Uh, they're worried about their, uh, their position. Uh, you know, what if Jesus, he even say a lot of not so nice things about us and we can't let him, you know, get too popular. And uh, so you, you again got this, this, this sense that you have the disciples who are super obedient and you got the, um, the Pharisees who are choosing to, um, to reject him, and in fact, the Pharisees, uh, they wanna even stop other people from serving him. And then Jesus says, I tell you the truth, um, if these disciples, if this crowd was silent, the very stones would cry out, and it's a nice saying, but, but really what, what Jesus is saying to the, the Pharisees, he's saying, um, you're fighting a losing battle. 
um, you cannot stop what is happening. In fact, if you tried to stop, if you covered the mouths of the disciples to try to stop their praise, uh, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna try to cover all the rocks in Jerusalem too? You're gonna throw all the rocks away because they're gonna praise me too. You're gonna cut down all the trees because they're gonna praise me too. You're gonna uh, you know, get rid of all the animals uh, in, in, in Jerusalem because they're gonna praise me too. He's just saying you're gonna find yourself fighting against God and you're not gonna win. And so see this, this kind of what, what the, 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 the uh, triumphal entry is, is kind of asking us, it's kind of saying, um, you know, are you simply following the crowd? You know, are you, or are you leading the crowd? You know, the disciples, uh, the disciples there were worshiping God, the crowd was following them and worshiping God. Um, they were showing the people what it truly means uh, to worship God. Um, and so this is a really question for us. You know, are we following the crowd, like following not just like the crowd in church, I mean, this is a good crowd, but like outside, right? Are you following the crowd? You just do the things that people say, well, you know, whatever. Um, are we responding to things the way people in the world respond? You know, when things don't go our way, do we complain like everybody else complains? Do we start going after things and getting things our way? Um, because that's what everybody else does. When, when things, when people don't treat us right, are we retaliating? Are we um, finding ways to say not so nice things about them? Are we protecting our reputation? Are we uh, trying to defend ourselves so that people think well of us? Are we trying to find uh, more people that will like us so that the other person will feel ashamed? Uh, those are, that's the crowd, that's the world. Uh, even when things are going our way, uh, are we saying, oh, you know, uh, what luck? Or are we saying, uh, oh, well, that's because I'm in the right place at the right time. Or, oh, well, you know, uh, I deserve this, you know. That's, again, that's the crowd. Uh, when we have the opportunity, when things, uh, uh, when we have the opportunity to do um, the right thing for God, will we do it? When we have the opportunity to do the wrong thing, and there are many opportunities to do the wrong thing, uh, and the crowd won't really care. Um, how are we gonna react? When we have the opportunity to do something extraordinary for Jesus Christ, but it requires extraordinary sacrifice. We follow the crowd and say, well, no, I just stick with the crowd. Or we step up and we do, we do, we do the right thing. Are we struggling to listen and obey Jesus Christ? Or are we struggling against God? And we all struggle. And we do struggle to listen and obey. And you may say, well, what's the difference between these two, struggling to listen and obey or struggling against God? Well, one is eventually gonna succeed. And one is doomed to fail, right? So we better know which one, when we're working hard to, to try to do the right thing, what are we really doing? So we see spiritually minded people, they see things in terms of spiritual significance. Um, they act appropriately. Final aspect is they know the end of all things. Now, uh, personally, I find these next verses to be the most emotionally powerful verses in the Bible when you really understand what's going on here. Look at verse 41. And when he, Jesus, drew near and he saw the city, 
he wept over it, saying, would you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. I mean, this reminds me of the loneliness of leadership or the loneliness of, of following hard after God. Why? Because you have this picture, I mean, you have to imagine this picture of these crowds and they're celebrating and they're, they're singing and they're saying, praise God, singing Hosanna. You have the disciples who have no idea what's coming up and, and they're rejoicing with all their hearts. They're so excited for Jesus and they're so excited for what's gonna happen, what they think is gonna happen. Jesus is entering the city. This is the culmination of his earthly ministry all has come to this point. In fact, this is the culmination of thousands of years of hopeful expectation of the nation has come to this moment where the Messiah enters into the holy city of Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that this was a moment, what it was supposed to be, that this was supposed to be the greatest celebration of all creation, to welcome the king with open arms, that God was supposed to pour out his blessing and his glory onto the city of Jerusalem, that it would overflow and bless all the other nations, that all the earth would finally know the peace of God, the king from God, and Jesus is amid all of this praise and rejoicing and no one notices what's really on his face, his composure as he approaches the city. It says that he was weeping, he was crying. He was weeping over the city, why? Because of all the people, all the disciples, all the crowds, Jesus knew what was coming. Judgment. He said, would that you know would, would that even you had known on this day what God would have done for you if you had received Jesus as the king of Israel. But now, now these things are hidden from your eyes. And Jesus goes on to say, for days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you. Oops, I gave away the, the answer. But anyways, the days will come upon you when the enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And I was about to say, those of you who were in the Life Bible class last week, you would know exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? He's not talking about long history. He's not talking about just the end of time. He's talking about what's going to happen to these people, to the Pharisees right now. And 40 years later, Josephus, a, a, a reliable historian, would write about the events that occurred in AD 70. And class, what happened in AD 70? The siege of Jerusalem, right? Titus would besiege the city of Jerusalem to the point where the people on the edge of starvation. And then on August 30th, this is actually a uh, relief from the, uh, the Arch of Titus, and you'll see actually the picture. These are the Roman soldiers carrying away the, um, the lampstand, carrying away um, the different uh, elements or furniture of the uh, tabernacle in, in uh, Jerusalem. And so they commemorate this, the Romans commemorate this as one of the great works of Titus, that on uh, AD, uh, in AD um, 
70, on August 30th, uh, Titus broke through the walls, slaughtered the Jewish people. These are the people that were living during Jesus' time. They burned the temple to the crown, to the ground. They took the Pharisees and high priests and they crucified them on the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, these were all the people, the, 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 the priests that were uh, spitting on Jesus and making fun of Jesus and saying, who will rescue you? Uh, you know, why don't you come down from the cross? Why don't you show your power? Uh, they're standing there thinking, nothing's gonna happen to us. Uh, look who won, right? We won, you lost. And Jesus was weeping for them. He was not saying, you just wait till, you just wait 30 years or He was weeping, he was crying for the Pharisees because he knew what was gonna happen to them because of what they, they, they were doing. This is a final judgment. You know, this is the idea that the spiritually minded people, we know about the final judgment. Now, um, we like to be positive about things, right? Um, in our relativi relativistic world, we like to say, everything's okay, it's all good. I, who am I to impose my truth and my beliefs on you? But that's not Jesus. Jesus wept. He wept with all the sorrow that his heart could endure because he knew that the coming of the king also means the coming of judgment. Now we also learn in the history class that what happened during the Christians during the time of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, that Eusebius, a man named Eusebius, received a vision from God which warned him of the coming judgment upon Jerusalem and so the Christians fled to a city called Pella and hidden caves, and they were saved actually from this great destruction of Jerusalem and, and, and the murder of all the, the people in Jerusalem, and so they were spared from the judgment of God upon the city. Now, you may look at this and say, well, I, you know, this is really hard. I don't wanna believe in a God who um, judges. I don't wanna believe in a God who would do these type of things, but you know, the Bible is very clear. Again, it's not what I want to believe. It's not what I want to happen. It's not what we want to happen. Um, it's what God, in his grace and his justice says this is what's going to happen. This is an integral part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is the burden of, it's, it's, it's the one burden that I would say of seeing things through spiritual eyes. That we know that a judgment is coming. That even as we, we, we think about Easter, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection but, but we also must um, be overwhelmed with the fact that this, is, this means judgment is coming. We, we, don't just, we don't just weep. I mean, we, we, we act for the rest of our lives, for as long as we have breath. Um, it's for the gospel. It doesn't matter how people have treated us. It doesn't matter what they're like. It doesn't matter what type of history we had with them or whether they deserve my kindness or all that kind of stuff. We weep. And we act. Because we know judgment is coming. We endure everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. We respond to persecution with love. We talked about the, 
the um, martyrs last week. We respond to humiliation with love. We respond to injustice with patience, with love. We, we, we bless. We, we, we honor Jesus Christ because everything we do is in light of the fact that judgment is coming. And, and, and that's something that, that as we, we continue uh, to approach Easter, um, let's continue to just be, be active uh, with the heart of Jesus Christ. And even this week to say, you know, what am I going to do this week? What am I going to do tomorrow? To, to, to show that I'm doing the things that, 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 that look at the spiritual significance of the things around me, the spiritual significance of, of the worker next to me, the spiritual significance of what this person shared with me or what he said to me, the spiritual significance of, of what one of my classmates happened to say about something or gossip about something. What's the spiritual significance? What is God saying that, that I now should do and respond? What is the opportunity that God is opening up for me to speak about Jesus Christ and to act in a way that... Um, that really would be uh, what he would say, uh, the, the, the words that would give life and, and bring people to Jesus. That's what we want, just even this week. So let's go ahead and let's spend some time in prayer. Let's, let's spend some time praying. Let's pray together. Pray before the Lord. And I know there's a lot of worldly, earthly things that, that cloud our minds.